Um, you ever watch or read something, and as you watch or read or whatever, you, you feel conflicted about one of the characters that's on, on the screen? You know, it's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to like you. I don't know if I'm not supposed to like you. I kind of feel sorry for you. Or maybe they change throughout the, the course of the show. There was a show like this that really did this for me a few years ago. It's called Breaking Bad. Anybody willing to admit they watched Breaking Bad? A few? Okay. I see those hands. So the main character was a guy by the name of Walter White, and uh, played by Brian Cranston. And he was a high school chemistry teacher. He had no money. He had a child with disabilities and was diagnosed with cancer. And you hear this hard luck story about this guy, and he decides to put his chemistry skills to use and manufacture drugs, math, to pay for his uh, cancer treatments, which I know it sounds bad, but you almost feel sorry for this guy because he's like, man, you just, oh my goodness, you know? And you feel a little sympathetic, but then throughout the series, there's a real turn in him. There's a real change in him where, you know, that's him at the beginning and that's him at the end. Not even seems like the same character, but even as the show ends, he tries to help his family and rescue his family, becomes sacrifices himself for others. And and so it's very interesting. He was a character that I'm like, I don't like you. I don't, I'm not supposed to like you, but I can feel sympathy for you. And it made me think about other characters maybe that we love to hate or hate to love or whatever. And I thought, you know, the internet helped with this list. Um, I thought about the Wicked Witch of the West. What do we think? Now, Wicked has certainly, that musical has certainly given us a whole new understanding, right, of Elphaba and all this and how she defies gravity and all that stuff. But typically, when you're a kid growing up and you watch this, you don't like her, do you? But then we consider what she's been through. Her sister is killed in a horrible accident where a house drops on her and the murderer, Dorothy, has no remorse. You know, she steals the witch's shoes and like brags about it. And Galinda, you know, the good witch provokes her. And then Dorothy shows up at her house and kills her too. Maybe a little misunderstood, right? Maybe. I don't, I'm not getting a lot of yeses on that one. All right, any Office fans out there? Anybody like The Office? Okay, so what about this character? Karen. She got such a bad rap. All she did was date Jim. She had no knowledge of the history, the romantic history of Jim and Pam, and yet she comes into the office, and we just don't like her because she's standing in the way of Jim and Pam, right? And so we're just like, yeah, we don't like you. But really, she was the other woman. She didn't have any choice in it. She was brutally dumped, and we really should feel bad for her for what happened. So conflicted over Karen, I get it. What about this next one from The Sound of Music, the Baroness Elsa Schrader? Anybody like her? No, but why not? She didn't know. She, again, is kind of caught in this love triangle, and we don't like her because she's the romantic rival of Maria. But when she realizes what's going on with Maria and the captain, what does she do? She bows out, doesn't she? And as I was reading this week, it said, you know, obviously she had her own money, so she wasn't after him for the money, and so she bowed out gracefully and allowed Maria and the captain to be together. So why don't we like this woman? I don't know. We're conflicted, aren't we? Here's another one. I do love this one. Squidward from SpongeBob SquarePants. Here's one that's definitely misunderstood. I read this quote on the internet. It says, as kids, 
We think he's the mean, grouchy one who never wants SpongeBob and Patrick to have any fun. But then you realize you are Squidward. Sure, he's a little grumpy, but mainly he just wants a little peace and quiet, which he never gets. I mean, to be fair, how many of us would be grumpy if SpongeBob was our neighbor? Yes, absolutely. See, so we have a little sympathy. And then we have this character I think that we love to hate, Walter Hobbs. Here's your Christmas movie. Walter Hobbs, a businessman who experiences intense pressure to succeed. And yes, there are moments where he's neglected his wife and son. But then he is surprised by a fully grown man who thinks he's an elf, who also thinks that an appropriate breakfast is spaghetti topped with strawberry, chocolate, and caramel sauce. In fact, I have a video of that one if you want to go. There you go. That's his breakfast. And just for good measure, what is he puts on there uh, strawberry, chocolate, and caramel sauce, maple syrup, marshmallows, Pop-Tarts, M&Ms, Oreos, Fruity Pebbles. Doesn't that look good? Mmm. Who wants some of that? Yum. <laughs> but poor Walter Hobbs, and at least at the end, he has a turnaround, right? Still a grumpy old man, but has a turnaround. Shows... I love shows that do that to us, that give us these characters that we love to hate or we hate to love. And really, as I w- you're thinking, Brent, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Really, this is what the Bible does to us, though, right? Doesn't the Bible do this to us as well? Doesn't it give us characters? And some characters are easy. You have the, e- the evil kings in the Old Testament, and you're like, I don't like you. You have Pontius Pilate, and you're like, I don't like you. You crucified Jesus. I don't like you. But then you have some characters that it makes us feel a little bit more conflicted. Like, how are we supposed to feel about that person? Because maybe there's some redeeming qualities about them. Maybe they're talked about in a way that's positive, but we see some of the behavior and it's really negative. And the Bible does that to us because the Bible is a real book about real people. And it's not just a made up fairy tale book about, you know, and give us only the rosy collection of stories of how well people did and how they succeeded. And many times we can read the Bible and think about these individuals and feel very conflicted. And today's one of those times where as we begin the Christmas series we're calling Crown, we're going to look at some prominent kings and queens in the Bible to see what they teach us and how they can point us to the ultimate king, King Jesus. But today we're going to be conflicted because today's character, today's story is about King David. King David. David is a very interesting guy though, isn't he? Because at least as we begin to look at him in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first thing that Matthew writes about David, look at what it's going to be on the screen. Matthew says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David. Not a naming convention that we really use today, is it? Because especially not of our ancestors that are alive or those that have passed on. I mean, I don't call my son Jaden, son of Brent, or God help him, Jaden, son of John Bunyan, who was my grandfather. You know, we don't use that. But for the audience that Matthew is writing to, the Jewish audience that he has, and it's also mentioned in Luke as well, this was a really important statement. This is a really significant thing that he's talking about. Because if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about how God made a promise to David. David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, but I will build you a house. I will establish your throne and your lineage forever. And that the Messiah would come through the line of David. 
And the gospel writers are calling back to that moment where God made that promise to David. They're pointing out that this is it. This is the one that the promise was made about. And so I'm about to tell you about what God is doing here. But more of that in a moment. We'll get, dig more into that. But we get to David, a man plucked from obscurity to prominence, who didn't hold power very well. To be fair, he was kind of abusive with some of his power. He had an extremely dysfunctional family, and yet somehow is wrote 73 of the Psalms in our Bible. There's 150, so he wrote almost half of the Psalms of our Bible. He had the favor of God, and he played a prominent role in the story of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? We're going to dig into this. He's the king that gets the most airtime in the Old Testament. We read about him in 1st and 2nd Samuel and also in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But today we're just going to hit the highlights. Who was David? Well, he started off what we learned about him at the beginning is he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd and he's the youngest of, of Jesse's eight sons. And really, there was nothing too significant about him. He's just like many of us. Not the tallest, not the shortest, not the best looking, not the ugliest. Just kind of normal. But there was something unique about him because as God was looking to replace King Saul, Saul had kind of gone off in his own path and God said, okay, I'm going to get rid of Saul. We're going to have a new king. And the prophet Samuel begins to go to anoint and find and anoint the new king. God leads him, Samuel, to Jesse. And you kind of have this interesting story play out where Samuel's there and he's like, I'm here to anoint one of your sons as king. And as would have been thought of in that culture, Jesse's like, great, let me get my oldest for you. Because that's what you would have expected. The oldest always was the most prominent. And Samuel sees it and God says, nope, that's not the one. And he sees all of Jesse's son except David. And he's th Samuel's thinking, is this all you got? And then Jesse's kind of like, yeah, I got one more, but he's out in the field. And Samuel's like, go get him. Now, this is so important because in that culture, the firstborn was the most prominent. David would have been known as Mr. Irrelevant. There was nothing special about the lastborn, especially the last of eight sons. There was nothing significant there. But in God's economy, in God's system, he always has a tendency to turn that upside down, doesn't he? He always has a tendency to take, I will take the least and elevate them. It's fascinating that he does this to David. So Samuel orders them to go get David and, he's, and we find that David kind of has this unique set of qualifications. And 1 Samuel 16 says, uh, you have this inner conversation between Samuel and the Lord. And it says, but the Lord told Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. This is what God is saying to Samuel after he's looked at the oldest son. He says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's a very fascinating statement right there. What did God see in David? What was there below the surface from the youngest and most insignificant son who stood out really in no significant way that God saw? We're going to talk about that. As a young boy, David was anointed king. In that moment, he's probably a teenager. But like King Charles, who had to wait a few years before he could ascend to the throne, David would have to wait about 20 years before he'd be able to sit on the throne and rule. But in that 20 or so years that David is kind of waiting, he's not just sitting at home watching Netflix and texting his friends. 
He's kind of having a very busy season of preparation. He became a servant to the existing king, Saul. Even became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. A friendship that was so close that in Jonathan's death, David said this. He said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. I mean, you're talking about just such an insignificant friendship between these two. It was during this preparation season that David fights Goliath. And don't we know that story? A very well-known story. I mean, we don't have time for all the details, but David goes to visit his brothers and who are in the army. The Israelites are in war with the Philistines, and Goliath is taunting the Israelites every day, mocking them and making fun of them, and more importantly, mocking their God. And David hears this, and he says, I'm not going to have any of this. Our God is bigger, better, stronger than this. And of course, everybody laughs, thinking, who are you? You're a small little kid. You can't do anything. But David knows that he can And he goes, he goes up against Goliath, who's a real warrior, a real tall man. And David goes, and and even as he's approaching Goliath, Goliath looks at David and says, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? You're just kind of making fun of David. David is undeterred. He goes to the stream bed, and he finds five stones. He only needs one. Here's a stone, actually from the stream bed in the Valley of Elah in Israel. Uh, I got to pick that up and bring that back. Um, we find uh, that's the Valley of Elah right there. The first part of that video is the hillside where the uh, Israelites would have camped. This is where the Philistines would have camped. We walked in this, the dry stream bed that was there. And we know the story, right? David takes this stone. The guide said this would have been about the size of the stone that David would have picked up. He put it in his swing, sling, hurled it around, and hit De- Goliath in the head with such force that it knocked him to the ground. David runs over to him, picks up his sword, and cuts off his head. There's your good children's bedtime story, isn't it? But that's what, you know, that's amazing, isn't it? And I will tell you, it was really cool to be able to be there. This was one of the non-commercial places we went. In fact, the bus had to stop on the side of the road, and we went down through a little ditch and across to a path to get back to this area. And uh, it was just fascinating to be able to walk there, and there was still all kinds of pottery and stuff, broken pottery in the ground, and uh, to see the dry creek bed and hear that, you know, it, there's no water there now, but when it rains in Jerusalem, which is higher elevation, it would come running down, and you looked over where the road was, and they said and for years, it just washed out the road, and now they got smart, and they put in drainage and places to divert the water so the road wouldn't, uh, wouldn't wash out. But, you know, David takes this, kills Goliath, and huge victory. Great children's story, right? Um, fast forward a few years in David's life. Saul becomes very jealous of David. They sang songs. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Saul hates this. And so uh, Saul spends years conspiring to kill David and actually going after it. Oh my goodness, the TV's just quit. And I was going to show you another picture from Israel. I'll post it. Um, but when David was fleeing uh, Saul, he went to a place called En Gedi. And Gedi is this oasis in the desert. There's actually a couple of waterfalls there that are really beautiful. There's greenery around there just in this barren wilderness. And as you're walking back to the waterfall, you see this cliff face here. And you can actually see in the cliff face caves. Well, as we read the story about David and Saul in this moment, you find that David hides from Saul in a cave. We don't know which one, but one of these. And Saul needs to relieve himself. And so he finds a cave to go to the bathroom, and it's the cave that David is in. 
David's men say, kill him, kill him, this is your chance. And David, as a man of integrity and honor, says, I will not kill the Lord's anointed. But he does sneak up to him and cut a little bit off the bottom of his robe. As Saul leaves, David comes out, holds it up and says, Saul, see, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And so, you know, you see some incredibly positive things in David's life when he doesn't do what he, what he could have done. And so far, most of this is just a great story, right? You've got a great young man. You see, yes, in this moment, we understand why God picked you, David. And then our story kind of takes a little bit of a turn, doesn't it? We know that David becomes king. He does some great things as kings. He consol- as king, he consolidates the 12 tribes. They become united under him. He moves the capital to Jerusalem, which is great. And uh, until that time that David should have gone to war, but he didn't. He's out for a little stroll one day, and he just happens to look across, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on a roof. And he says, I want that. You know, and he takes her, he sleeps with her. Today, you know, I read a lot of stuff about this, and for us it's easy to go, oh, well, boys will be boys. But today we would really call this sexual assault, wouldn't we? You had a man in power. What could Bathsheba have said to him even if she didn't want to? If she had said no, he would have killed her or could have killed her. It was definitely a power imbalance, and so she's very much a victim here. And, of course, we know how this story plays out. She gets pregnant. David, trying to cover up his misdeed, uh, sends for her husband, thinking, if I can get him to sleep with her, then they won't know it's my kid. But Uriah proves to be a real man of honor, refuses to be with his wife, saying, how can I sleep in my bed when my men are out fighting? And he doesn't. And so David does the unthinkable. He says, I know what I have to do. I have to kill him. You'd like to think there were maybe three or four other options before he got there because death is often, that's it's pretty extreme. And he doesn't kill him with his own hands, but he has others do it. Sends Uriah to the front line, tell the commander, says, give the word and pull everyone back but Uriah so that the enemy army overtakes him and kills him. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah dies. David takes Bathsheba as his wife. And what's interesting is in this moment, David doesn't seem to, at least we don't have a record that David knows that he's done anything wrong. It's almost as if he just goes about his life. You know why I think that? Because then we get to the story where the prophet Nathan comes to David. And Nathan tells this this parable about a man with sheep and somebody comes along and kills the man so he can have the guy's sheep. And David is incensed. He's like, "How how could that happen? That's terrible. That person needs to die. And then Nathan says, you are that man. How was it that David has done these things? He's become a murdering adulterer. And it takes somebody coming into his life to say, you've really messed up. You've really screwed up. But in that moment, what we don't see is David trying to deny or deflect anything. We see him take responsibility. And he repents. We'll look at a little later at actually his words for repentance. And David's life continues on, but really it doesn't kind of, it kind of goes downhill from there, to be honest. I mean, it's kind of like there's no real rah-rah moment towards the end. His dysfunctional family kind of takes over. One, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. One another son, Absalom, decides to kill that son for what he did. And then Absalom decides, I want to be king. 
and tries to kill David in the process. It's, it's kind of a tragic story at the end. It doesn't end on a high note. And then you get that part of the story that we talked about. David wants to build a temple for God, and God says no. And uh, God says, I'll build a house for you. And that's kind of the pinnacle of the story. But you know what I find most fascinating about the story of David is it, is it, an, it isn't all the fun stories we might have heard about in Sunday school like Goliath and Bathsheba. What's interesting is just how David is referred. Matthew 1, we've already looked at. Jesus, the son of David. What a descriptor. You go over to Acts chapter 13 and you find Paul. He's in a synagogue one Sabbath day. And the leaders are there and they say, Hey, Paul, do you got a word for us today? And Paul begins to speak and he talks about their Jewish heritage. And he begins to talk a lot about David. And in doing so, Paul says this. He says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. I don't know about you, but in that moment as I read that, I think, how in the world is it possible that a man who did such heinous things could be called a man after God's own heart. I mean, let's be honest here. If we were looking for a pastor here at Ashworth, would we even give David's resume a second look? Probably not, right? It would probably immediately be thrown in the trash. Today we might say we would cancel David maybe, you know. But there's something here. I mean, that, that expression... I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. A man after God's own heart. Wow. What is it that God sees? I don't know. Maybe we'll figure it out. But it is an incredible reminder for us that God sees things differently than we see, doesn't he? God doesn't judge the way we do. God doesn't hold things the way we do. What is it that possibly that God could have seen in David so much so that he considered him worthy to be in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, for Jesus forever to be known, for us today to still be sitting here thousands of years later to say, Jesus, son of David. Why would God even make such a promise to such an absolute failure? You see, when you look at the totality of David's life, we don't see perfection, not even close. But we do see some key characteristics of David's life that I think we should notice. Things like this, obedience. Didn't you see what Paul said about him? He said, David would do everything God wanted him to do. And you look at David's life, and for the most part, that was a characteristic of his. Not always, but the majority of the time. David had an, a habit of inquiring of the Lord. He had a habit of studying the words of God. He wanted to know. He thought the law of the Lord, the word of God was good and useful. In fact, as you look at something that David wrote in Psalm 19, he wrote this. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. 
The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. How often do we say that? The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. We look sometimes at this and we go, no, it's just a club to beat me down and make me feel horrible. And David's like, no, there's life here. There's joy here. There's meaning here. There's purpose here. The commands of the Lord, David says, are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Knowing and listening and obeying God were important to David, even if he didn't get it right 100% of the time. Even, and even here, I think this is one of the most astounding examples of David's obedience. When David says to God, I want to build you a temple, and God says, no. What did David do? Did he look at God and go, I'm going to build you one anyway. You deserve it. I'm going to do it. He didn't, did he? He looked at God basically and says, Okay. Now, he did collect the resources so his son could do it, but he didn't build anything for God that way. He recognized and was obedient. Think about, well, just think about it. What, what does the king not have the power to do? Everything. He can do everything, right? Who's going to tell the king no? Nobody. And yet in this moment, when God tells the king no, he says, okay. There's an incredible example there. And even though David may not have always been obedient, we do see that when he was confronted with his failure, he doesn't deny, he doesn't deflect, he doesn't try to cast blame on somebody else. He owns it. He owns it. There's humility and repentance. In fact, in that exchange with David and Nathan, we see what comes out of that in another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 51 where David writes these words. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Just think about the power in that statement. I have sinned against the Lord. There's no deflection. There's no turning. There's no twisting. There's no defensiveness in that moment. I, I've sinned against God. He recognizes it and he owns it. And then you begin to see in that same psalm the depths of his sorrow and the depths of his repentance. Listen to what he says. He writes out, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Can you imagine a king today, King Charles, saying to anyone, Have mercy on me? Probably not. The king is the one that's begged for mercy. And yet here we have the king going, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. I mean, David realizes that nothing is going to take care of his sin. He can't write a law or an edict or pass anything that's going to do what only God can do. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He continues on. He says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Man, what a statement. Then he continues on. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God. You will not despise. And we know that from the story, David did exactly that. He spent time in sackcloth and ashes, in mourning, begging for God's forgiveness. He's not trying to justify it. As the most powerful person in the world, he could have done anything he wanted to do. 
After all, Henry VIII wanted a divorce and he created an entire religion so he could do that. Yet David doesn't. He says, forgive me, God. He owns it. And what a lesson for us today. Far too often we see leaders fall and do everything possible to get out of owning up to it. Up to and including acting like it doesn't happen, ignoring it, disappearing. I mean, I can't tell you the number of pastor failure stories that have happened in the last five years where you'll see everything but a response like David. Everything but. And I'll tell you, it might be offensive for us, to some anyway, to see and to use David as God has. To give such a glowing refrain, a man after God's own heart. But for me, what I see is a man who doesn't have it all together. And his failure is written about in the best-selling book of all time. Anybody want your failures written about in the best-selling book of all time? I don't think so. And for all the world to know what a screw-up he was. And still, and still, and still, God could use him. What a message that we need to be reminded of at Christmas. We pretend we have it all together, that life is Instagram perfect all the time. Excuse me, you're the older crowd. Facebook perfect all the time. But we know better. We all have parts of our lives that we would prefer not to see the light of day. The fights, the challenges, or communication struggles in our imperfect marriages, the struggle with our kids, especially with those who may have walked away from faith, the dissatisfaction with our coworkers or jobs, that's not one for me personally, our search history, our viewing habits, whatever it might be. And the story of David, as it leads us to the story of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is a reminder that Jesus is a place where the imperfect can find refuge. Don't you love that? David, as an ancestor of Jesus, is a reminder that Jesus is a place where the imperfect can find refuge. And while we see so much of the imperfection in David, you know what he does? He points us to a new David a new and perfect David, the one that God told us about thousands of years before, the one that God promised would come through a screw-up like David. And when Matthew writes what he does about Jesus as the son of David, he's not making a genealogical statement, a statement about his heritage. He's making a messianic statement. He's telling them and the world who Jesus is. This is the one that has been promised. And he's telling us that an imperfect king like David can point to a perfect Messiah, the promised one, the King of Kings. And what I love is what Amy read this morning, that Isaiah chapter 6. She read the first part of this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But listen to the next verse. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Even the prophet Isaiah is reminding us that the unlikely king David foreshadows another unlikely king 
And Jesus is an unlikely king, born in obscurity in Bethlehem. What good can come from Bethlehem? To an unwed teenage girl claiming to be a virgin, a poor family of no prominence or status. But he's also showing us that an imperfect king who uses power for his own gain, for his own benefit, for his own selfishness, can also point the way to the perfect king who shows us how power can be used in a better way in laying down his life in service for others. And it shows us also that God is not limited by our failures. I love that, don't you? God is not limited by our failures. And in spite of our failures, God's kingdom can move forward even in and through our lives when and if we're willing to listen to his voice and to respond as David did to those promptings with humility. To have an openness that says, you know what, I don't have it all figured out with God. Everything is on the table. I'm willing to give it all up for him to take up my cross daily for the awesome privilege of knowing and following Jesus. That passage in Acts I quoted earlier from Paul when he's in the synagogue, if you read a little bit further, he ends that message with these, these words. He says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification we were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Who likes that message? Anybody here like that message? Therefore, my friends, to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. That's a message at Christmas we can get excited about, isn't it? To realize that what we may want to hide, God already knows and is really already forgiven through the work of Jesus on the cross. And it means that we can live in that forgiveness, and we should live in that forgiveness and in that freedom so that it can be said of you and me that you are a man or a woman after God's own heart. Let's pray.